The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, especially today in light of another terrorist attack, and this one in London, we recognize that our freedoms are fragile, that there are many evildoers in this world who would like to destroy our freedoms, destroy this nation, and they are religiously motivated. Father, we know that our continued freedoms and our standing as a nation is only due to your grace. Father, we pray that you would use these instances to create a wake-up call that would alert people in Europe and in America that how, how fragile things really are in our life and how quickly they could be taken away and that there is a need to have a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word now. And as we study about our magnificent Lord, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to, you can turn to Hebrews 1, verse 5, just to get started, just to have a touchstone before we start jumping around to several other places in the New and Old Testament, just to get an understanding of what is going on here in Hebrews 1, verse 5. Here we read, For to which of the angels did he, that is, God the Father, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this is the first verse in really the first section of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is the opening prologue, and that prologue introduces some of the major themes and ideas that we are going to go through again and again as we go through this crucial book of Hebrews. And it ended in verse 4 with the statement that, having become so much better than the angels, he has in, uh, as he has in, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The point is that Jesus Christ, at the ascension, received a higher position than the angels. This is clear from a number of other passages in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 3:22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Ephesians 1:20 20 to 22, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That's the guts of the doctrine of the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. 
In that ascension, he's placed in authority over everything. He was created a little lower than the angels, but in the ascension, he is elevated above the angels and above everything in the universe, and he is the head of the church. There's an important connection there because his position as the head of the church relates specifically to his high priestly ministry to church-age believers, and that is about as close as the Apostle Paul gets to the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's up to the writer of Hebrews to develop that whole doctrine and its significance for us today. So he concludes that opening section in verse 4, referencing this elevation of the Lord Jesus Christ to a position that is superior to that of the angels. And with that, he ends the prologue, but it is the transition statement into the first section, which is going to demonstrate the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not to simply emphasize the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the significance of that for the spiritual life of the church-age believer. And that becomes evident if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, where there is the exhortation. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard and not drift away. In other words, this isn't just a mere academic statement about Christ's superiority to the angels or to his elevation at the session, but it has implications for how we think and how we live in terms of our own spiritual life. But this is based on two doctrines that really aren't discussed very much. You know, I can get up here sometimes, and and if I wanted to spend about the next 20 minutes just really bemoaning the fact that nobody wants to learn doctrine anymore and nobody wants to study anymore, I could do that. But then we'd all go away, and we would just, you know, have another uh, negative jam session, and we won't do that. Nobody wants doctrine anymore. But this is what the spiritual life is predicated upon, certain facts, understanding certain facts about who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing right now. And who he is relates to something called the Sonship of Christ. And we've gone through these titles of the Sonship of Christ, the five titles related to his humanity and one to his deity. And they connect together under this concept right here of the Sonship and They connect in the two quotes of verse 5. Now, what's remarkable in this section is that the writer of Hebrews is going to go into the Old Testament and select phrases and sentences from eight different Old Testament passages, and he weaves them together in order to establish this case of who Jesus Christ is, of his uh, position over everything in the universe, and that position also means that he has power. That means he has authority to rule and to reign the creation. Position without authority is meaningless. And to have authority, you have to have power to execute in the area of responsibility that you have. And so here the argument is that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the royal high priest, as the king priest, is superior because of his authority. If I wanted to structure the argument in terms of a syllogism, I would say that the major premise here is that the Messiah, based on these Old Testament passages, the Messiah is superior to the angels. And that's the point that is made in verse 5, that to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Messiah is superior to the angels. The unstated minor premise is that Jesus is the Messiah. That is assumed throughout the first chapter, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, Messiah from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which you know means the anointed one, or the appointed one. So the major premise would be the Messiah is superior to the angels. Minor premise, Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, conclusion, Jesus is superior to the angels. And because Jesus is in a position superior to the angels, and because you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are united with him in Christ, 
we are in a position that, even though experientially we are created lower than the angels, we eventually at the rapture will be higher than the angels, and we will rule and reign over the angels. And as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will indeed judge the angels. Now, how are you going to judge the angels? We all know if we have paid any attention to recent uh, events in the news with the retirement of a Supreme Court judge and all of the uh, battles going on in the Senate related to filibuster and judgeships and a lot of the criticism related to different judges like the one up in Minnesota who uh, let this child molester out uh, of prison and he killed this little boy and then uh, kidnapped this little girl, that there's a problem with judges. And the problem is that most judges have no integrity in their soul and they have no content in their soul upon which to base decisions. And if you don't have integrity and content in your soul to make wise decisions, you can't judge. And that's the underlying issue throughout Hebrews is that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our destiny is to rule and reign with Christ as those who are joint heirs with him. We will be metakoi, we will be overcomers, we will be companions, partakers, we will be those who co-rule, co-reign with him and we judge the angels and you can't get there if you don't have doctrine in your soul. If you haven't passed through the training ground during your three score and ten on planet earth, then you won't be prepared to sit and execute judgment at during the millennial kingdom. And that is why those who don't make it there are said to be outside the kingdom. They are not participants or owners or heirs of the kingdom. They may be present, but they are not there with a position of authority. So this is the background for the whole whole book. So it presupposes a certain understanding of these two doctrines, the session of Christ, which is brought up continuously throughout the book, and the sonship of Christ. So last time we went through rather rapidly some issues related to uh, Psalm 2, and this, of course, relates to the ascension of Christ. And we started off, I reminded you a little bit of Psalm 68:18 and how it was used in Ephesians 4, showing that the ascension is pictured as a victorious ascension, as just as God took the high ground physically when the temple, excuse me, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken to the top of the Temple Mount, that pictured the victory of God over the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. That is applied to Jesus ascending over everything in the, at the ascension, and it's a victorious uh, uh, taking of the high ground. Then we looked at Daniel 7 and following, which indicated that there's this time lapse before he's given, as the Son of Man, before he is given the kingdom. And then we looked at Psalm 2, which we'll review again this evening, and then eventually we'll get to Psalm 110, because that is quoted in this passage as well. So these are the four major passages in the Old Testament that inform New Testament writers as to the significance of the ascension and session. So Psalm 2, this is review. I told you last time when we wrapped up that I would go back and review this uh, briefly, pull some things together. It's so important to understand Psalm 2, and it's not really an easy psalm to understand. I remember some years ago now, I won't tell you how many, sitting in... Christology. It was a basic theology, uh, systematic theology course at Dallas Seminary. And we had a new professor who just came in. He was later on uh, promoted to the head of the department, but this was in his first or second year, and he was his best those first two or three years he was on the faculty. He wasn't as good later on for various other reasons, but those first years he was still within the traditional Chaferian camp, and he did an excellent job teaching Christology. And he sat right in front of the class. There was a center aisle. And I sat on the corner seat, front and center. And Tommy I sat right next to me. And we, we almost had a religious experience every single day in class because his lectures were so good. If it hadn't have also been a class on pneumatology, we might have spoken in tongues. I'm just kidding. 
It was a great class, and he taught through Psalm 2. And when he taught through Psalm 2, he went through all the passages in the New Testament where Psalm 2 was used. He went through Acts 13 and Romans 1, 4 and Hebrews 1. And it was just tremendous how he put it together. And I went back and I read those notes, and I've read them since. And every time I go through this, I see new things. This is one of the most basic passages from the Old Testament in terms of the New Testament. It's, Psalm 2.7 is referred to or directly quoted at least four times in the New Testament. And Psalm 2 itself is used about four or five other times in the New Testament. And whenever you have a psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and there's one or two others that are used, Psalm 89, that are alluded to or quoted directly several times in the New Testament, you better wake up and pay attention because God the Holy Spirit is saying that the theology in these psalms is crucial to understand what is going on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his person and in his work. And so I don't uh, begrudge you any bit because I have to repeat this over and over again. In fact, for years I used to have to go through and almost start from scratch on Psalm 2 because it is not simple and the implications are profound. So it starts off, it's a prophetic psalm, as I said last week. It looks forward to the time period at the end of the tribulation. That's the scenario. This is at the end of the tribulation, so it is a prophetic messianic psalm. Of course, it's almost redundant. All messianic psalms are prophetic, but it is still prophetic. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And it is a picture of all the kings of the earth gathering together against the Lord and the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. So this is a conspiracy, a UN conspiracy, against God the Father, referred to in this verse as Yahweh, and God the Son, referred to in this verse as the, his anointed, the Messiah. And this is what they say, let us tear God's fetters apart. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And this is the continuous position of modern man, of man since the fall, actually. But it's getting more and more noticeable with modern man. They don't want God in their lives. We have removed him from the schools. We've removed him from the courtrooms now. We want to remove God from everything because we want to run it ourselves. We don't need God. And it's going to get worse until you get this, this final expression at the end of the tribulation. But this is God's view in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. There's a picture here, a somewhat anthropomorphic picture of God just laughing at minuscule man who shakes his fist at Almighty, Omnipotent God. And at that time, then, which is the Hebrew word Oz, then he, that is God the Father, will speak to them in his anger. That is the expression of his justice. He's not suddenly getting angry. You know, this is an anthropopathic term, meaning human emotions are attributed to God, which he doesn't actually possess in order to express God's policy, plans, or purposes. There's a lot of debate over whether God has emotion or not. And some people say he has emotion, and what they really mean isn't that much different from what I say. They would say, well, just as God's thoughts are not our thoughts, his emotion isn't like our emotion. But you see, if emotion is defined as a response to stimuli, whatever that may be, then you can't have God having emotion. Because emotion is a response to something. Since God is omniscient, he always knows what was going to happen. So he isn't becoming angry because that that would violate immutability. So that would mean that since he's always known they're going to rebel, he's always been angry. So God's eternally angry. No, that's not right. See, wrath is an expression of an anthropopathic expression of God's justice, just as we talk about, you know, the the judge threw the book at me. Well, what an emotional outburst that is. Think of that imagery. God just threw the book at me. The judge just threw the book at me. He just got mad at me and just threw the book at me. Well, we don't literally mean that. What we're saying is that we felt the full 
wrath, the full extent of the law was, thrown, was given to us. We had to pay the full penalty. And that's what this is indicating. God is speaking to them in his wrath. That is the full, fullest expression of his justice. And terrifying them in his fury, saying, But as for me, God the Father, this is where it gets difficult. You have to pay attention to the pronouns. Who's speaking in verse 6? God the Father. He says, But uh, as for me, I, God the Father, have installed my king upon Zion. So the king is the son. So you have two personages here all the way through. You have Yahweh and his Messiah earlier, and here you have uh, God the Father saying, I've installed my king upon Zion. Now, who is my king? My king is the Messiah. So immediately we're making this connection, and now we have Davidic overtones from the Davidic covenant. And this indicates a human king. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I want to run through this slide quickly. Of course, you know that this, the Davidic covenant is the expression of the seed paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to deal with that in detail later on. But uh, what we see right here, let me back up a minute. What we see right here is the installation of the king is Davidic. This is the Davidic covenant. And when a Jew heard this, that's what he thought about, was this is the Davidic covenant. Okay. Now we've seen this slide. Davidic covenant comes out of 2 Samuel 7. And what I want to do tonight is to spend some time reviewing the Davidic covenant. Because this is the essence of sonship. In our one aspect of the sonship in Hebrews. It is one that Jesus is the Son of God, indicating his full deity. The other part is that it recognizes his, uh, that he is the Son of David. And this tie, and this is connecting in our quote in verse 5a, the quote from Psalm 2 7, to the second half of verse 5 which is a quote from 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 7:14 that in uh, Hebrews 2:5 is I shall be to him a father and he shall be to me a son so we're going to look at 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel 7:14 says I will be his father and he shall be my son direct quote so under the holy spirit the writer of Hebrews is connecting Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Now, this is really an interesting move because this is going to just shore up the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's remember the covenants. There are three Gentile covenants in the Old Testament. There's the Edenic covenant or the creation covenant. This is an old slide. I now prefer to call it the creation covenant, Genesis 1:27 to 28, which is, has to be modified because of the fall, and then it becomes the Adamic covenant. This sets up the, the Edenic covenant or creation covenant, set up the first dispensation of perfect environment, also called innocence, which is really not a bad term. Because innocence has two uh, connotations in our language. One is that of, of someone who's rather naive and innocent, and uh, that's not a good connotation. But the other is a judicial connotation, and that is that a person standing before the bar of justice is innocent. And that's exactly how that word was utilized when C.I. Schofield chose it, to refer to this first dispensation. It is referring to the fact that they were not guilty. They were not only just not guilty, they were innocent judicially before the throne of God. And that's the issue throughout the Bible again and again and again, folks. It's not experience that counts. It, is, it has to do with the Supreme Court of Heaven and God's justice. That's why you can't be saved unless you are justified, unless you possess the perfect righteousness of God. The whole concept of forgiveness, again, confession is a judicial term. All of these terms are borrowed from a legal structure. And God runs the universe according to these covenants, which are what? 
contracts, legal contracts. So we have to think of these terms in legal, uh, with legal nuances. The Adamic covenant has to be modified again after the flood with the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect today. Those are Gentile covenants, and they were for the entire human race. But because of the failure of the Tower of Babel, God called out a new and unique uh, people who would be descendants of Abraham. Abraham is given a covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's officially cut in Genesis 15 and reconfirmed with a sign attached to it in Genesis chapter 17. Then there is, uh, there are three more covenants given to Israel that expand the land, the seed, and the blessing aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. See, this is good review for Tuesday night. You have the real estate or land covenant in Deuteronomy 30. You have the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7. And then a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, the interesting thing is that Hebrews recognizes and assumes the existence of the Abrahamic covenant. It does not deal with the land covenant because that is a literal covenant to Jews that they're going to have eternal possession of this piece of real estate located over there on the eastern end of the Mediterranean between the river of Egypt and the river Euphrates. But there is a lot of discussion in Hebrews on the Davidic covenant. That's the background for understanding sonship. And in Hebrews chapter 8, there's a reference to the new covenant that replaces the old covenant. So you have to understand this whole structure to really understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And then, of course, undergirding much of Hebrews is the fact that the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect because it has been replaced or superseded by its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So that gives you just a little overview of how the covenants fit together. Now let's look at the Davidic covenant under seven headings. Seven headings. The first is Scripture. The second, the persons involved in the covenant. The third, the importance of the covenant. Fourth, the provisions of the covenant. Fifth, the confirmations of the covenant. Six, the extent of the covenant. And seventh, the status of the covenant. Okay, we'll repeat each of those again, but that just gives you the uh, basic overview and outline for understanding the Davidic covenant. First of all, uh, the scripture. The scripture is pretty simple. It's 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 14, which we'll look at in a minute, as well as 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14. 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 14, and 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14, and then it's reiterated in Psalm 89. Those are your three key passages for understanding the Davidic covenant. The central passage, though, is 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 15. The Chronicles passage in Psalm 89 are either parallel in the case of Chronicles or a commentary on the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89. So the First, that covers the first point, the, past, the uh, scripture. The second point was the persons. Who are, who's involved? Remember, a contract is a covenant between either two people or two groups of people or one individual, one group of people, one, one group of uh, people. So we have two parties to the contract. God is the party of the first part. He is the one who is giving this contract to David. David has not asked him. It is a free grace contract. That means it it is unconditional and it is unilateral. Those are the two key words for every covenant in the Old Testament except for the Mosaic. It's unconditional and unilateral. That means its blessings are, are, are its possession. Actually, its possession is not conditioned upon anything. And it's unilateral in that God himself is bound to that contract without putting conditions upon man for the contract. So it is something that God bestows on the individual or on the race. So in this case, God is party of the first part, and David is a party of the second part as he represents his entire lineage, known now as the Davidic dynasty. David represents all of his heirs. 
So it is between God, party of the first part, and David as the representative of his family, his descendants, the Davidic dynasty. Third, in terms of its importance, why is it so important? Well, it's important because it establishes the meaning of the seed paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant, that the seed now is specifically restricted to the Davidic line. It's not just the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just the line of Judah. It is now specified to be the line of David. So it expands on the seed paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant that the Messianic seed is going to come through David. Those are the first three points. Scripture, persons, its importance, and now let's look at the provisions. There are six provisions. First of all, God promises David a house. Uh, This is in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11 and 16, and again in 1710. 2 Samuel uh, 7, verse 11 and verse 16 and 1710. 711 reads, uh, Since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a House. This isn't a literal house. This means a dynasty. Verse 16, and, in your, and your dynasty, your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Second provision, Solomon, not the oldest son. Solomon will be established upon David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 12. Uh, when your days are fulfilled... And you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, Solomon isn't mentioned there, but we know that that becomes, uh, will be Solomon. And then it is promised that it, it will be his son, not David, who will build the temple. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. See, God, notice there's a play on words here. God says, I will make a house for you, and then your seed will make a house for me. The Holy Spirit loves these little paranomasias. I will make a house for you. See, what was David's heartbeat at this time? He wanted to build a temple for God. But God said, no, that is not in my plan for you. I'm going to make a house for you instead. I'm going to give you a dynasty, and it will be your seed who will build a house for my name. And I will establish his throne forever. That's the fourth provision. And... 2 Samuel 7:13b the throne of Samuel Solomon's kingdom will be established forever it's not the person but the throne itself so it's going to be an eternal throne as i pointed out last time if you have an eternal throne you have to have one of two things you have to have an eternal line of descendants or a line of descendants that culminates in somebody who's eternal And that's why it culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal one who will be able to fulfill that. But he has to be human because he has to be from the physical lineage of David. So you get these hints all the way through the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to be human. But on the other hand, he has to have certain divine attributes. So the Jews should not have been surprised by the Messiah claiming to be God. It's embedded over and over again, as we'll see in some of the passages we look at uh, related to the Davidic covenant. Fifth provision. Solomon will be punished for disobedience, but God's covenant love will not be removed from him. Uh, Verse 14b, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So there's the near application of this covenant in Solomon. Sixth provision. In the Chronicles passage, the emphasis is on the Messiah, his throne, his house, and kingdom being established forever. In the Chronicles passage, the emphasis shifts. In the Samuel passage, it's a little more on the uh, immediate lineage of Solomon, but in the Chronicles passage, it's more on the ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah. First Chronicles 17.10, 
even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, that I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you, and it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. That's more messianic than it is Solomonic. First Chronicles 17, uh, 13 and 14, I will be his father, he shall be my son. That again sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, that's almost, that's taken right out of 1 Samuel 7, and so you could even say that Hebrews 1, 5b was taken from there. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, that would be Saul. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So it's talking about the throne of the Messiah, which, of course, is the throne of David. And the throne of David was a literal throne in in Jerusalem. So we must determine that the throne of the Messiah is an eternal throne in Jerusalem. It's not at the right hand of God right now, which is what amillennialism teaches. They spiritualize the throne, they spiritualize the land, and they spiritualize the kingdom. These are the provisions in the covenant, the six provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. Then there were, I said, there were the fifth point is that four things were promised. There were various promises given. Four eternal things are promised. An eternal house or dynasty, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal descendant. Four things, all eternal. House or dynasty, kingdom, throne, and descendant. So the eternality of those is guaranteed only by a Messiah who is fully God. Now, if we've got all that, there are several confirmations to the Abrahamic covenant. God is very precise in that he, if he speaks to anyone in private, there are confirmations and there are objective validations. There is no basis for Christians running around saying, God told me to do X, Y, or Z, and there's no validation or objective verification. You don't find that even in the Bible. In fact, there are few people that God does actually audibly speak to in all of Scripture. But when he does, it's never subjective. It's never this inner light voice. It is an external reality. I always really get get a little uh, upset whenever I hear people talk about the still small voice. And that comes out of Elijah. Those of you who heard the study I did last week when I was in Preston City heard that, heard me cover that in 1 Kings chapter 19 after Elijah dives into self-despondency and despair and depression God takes, he runs away and he runs down all the way to Mount Sinai and he goes up in a cave, which is probably the same cave where God spoke to Moses. And while he's in that cave, God appears to him and speaks to him. First he gives him a a demonstration of his power. There's an earthquake and there's fire and there's a mighty wind. And each time it says, but God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the mighty wind. And then there was a still small voice. And I tell you, the crazy expositors always say, well, see, that's the inner voice of God. And they get real pious. And I went through that passage again, bound and determined to to understand this this passage. And I realized that it's in a context. And, folks, you just have to pay attention to context. You've got a context. The earthquake is external to Elijah. The fire is external to Elijah. The roaring wind is external to Elijah, and so is the voice. You've got to keep, it's, a, it's a running list. The voice is not something he's hearing in his head. It is an external voice of God, and it is still and it is small in contrast to these mighty external demonstrations that he has just witnessed because this is a man of tremendous miracles. God is demonstrating to him that the reality of God's presence isn't in the manifestations of the miraculous. It's in the communication of content. How about that little alliteration? That'll preach. 
It's not in all of these noisy things. It's in the content of what he communicates. It's in the voice. What does a voice do? It communicates data. It communicates information. It communicates doctrine. He's saying, Elijah, quit being distracted by the miracles and focus on the content of my revelation. And it has nothing to do with listening to some inner voice. Now, that's what got the Quakers quaking and the Shakers shaking and all those other, and the Pentecostals speaking in tongues is all this distortion on the, on the uh, still small voice. And Baptists get into it too. They're just as bad. Okay, we have these external confirmations. Second Samuel 23 confirms the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89, all 52 verses of Psalm 89 are a reconfirmation of the Davidic covenant. And it emphasizes the fact that the provisions of the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled just as God promised, despite any behavioral flaws in David's descendants. So we have four things promised, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, eternal throne, and an eternal descendant. And we have confirmations in 2 Samuel 23 and Psalm 89. And then, seventh, we have the extent of the covenant. It is eternal, just as we've seen with the Abrahamic covenant. It is eternal, just as we've seen with the promise of the land. It is eternal, everlasting. This is an everlasting covenant. And if you start messing with that and you try to make it mean something else, that has some terrible implications. Jesus is the eternal son of David. Well, that's not eternal. It's just for a short time. Whoa. Well, you've got to do that if, if the possession of the land is, isn't eternal. Well, wait a minute. The possession of the land isn't the physical real estate, which is what Amil say. They say, well, we've got to spiritualize. It really means heaven. Oh, well, Jesus isn't. It doesn't have to be the literal son of David. See what happens, folks, when you start toying with literal interpretation. You can start making the Scripture mean anything, and there's no objective guideline anymore. And next thing you know, you, you, you can do away with the deity of Christ, which is exactly what happened historically in the progression of the deterioration of theology. That's sort of an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. In the, as doctrine progressed, or it progressively deteriorated through the 19th century. Okay, let's look at some other passages. Isaiah 9.6 indicates the extent. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. That term son just is loaded with Davidic nuance. A son is given to us. What are they, what's a Jew going to think? Psalm 2.7. A child will be born to us. What's this? Birth. Humanity. A son will be given to us. Now, that's a little different, even though this seems to be a synonymous parallelism. In fact, it is more of an expansion on the idea what's called an emblematic parallelism. A child is born to us, but a son is given to us. The son that is given to us emphasizes the deity of Christ that he is given at the Incarnation. And then we're told the government will rest on his shoulders. What government would that be? The Davidic kingship, the Davidic government. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The next phrase is always mistranslated. It's not Eternal Father. The Son is not the Father. It's the Father of Eternity, literally in the Hebrew, emphasizing his eternality. Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the what? Throne of David, not the Father's throne, not the right hand of God, but on the throne of David. How would you understand that in the 6th century B.C. as a Jew living in the southern kingdom of Judah while you have a Davidic descendant on the throne? How are you going to understand that on the throne of David? Oh, that's somewhere in heaven. How absurd. No, that is in Jerusalem, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. God doesn't play a bait-and-switch game with Scripture. He's not going to say one thing in the Old Testament and then shift to the New Testament. This is a problem with covenant theology, is you can't understand the Old Testament till you get the New Testament. 
because the New Testament changes the meaning of the terms. That means they were deceived in the Old Testament, doesn't it? The only dispensationalism is consistent. He's on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. The psalmist said, justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne and truth, love and truth go forth from it. Isaiah 11.1 1, pictures something that will happen in the future to this Davidic line. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Not the tree of Jesse. Well, you would think that this is some 400 years after David that we've got a whole uh, ancestral tree here. But it's a stem. It's been cut down. There's just a stub left. And that's uh, then a shoot will spring from the stub of Jesse, which shows what happened actually is the Davidic dynasty had been cut down in the fifth cycle of discipline when the southern kingdom went out. And even though the lineage was still there, there was no Davidic king. And so it had become just a stub. And so the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Next confirmation among the prophets is in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. Implication, there may be a tearing down before there's a raising up. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So the descendant is clearly connected to David, and the characteristic of his reign again is justice and righteousness. And in verse, verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Now that hasn't happened truly since 586 B.C. Israel will dwell securely and, and Judah will be saved. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Then we come to Je- Jeremiah 30 verses 8 and 9. And it shall come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that is literally Yahweh of the armies, The term hosts is simply an antiquated English word that means armies. Look it up in the dictionary. It means armies. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of the armies, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them, that is, the Jews, their slaves, but they shall serve Yahweh their king and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So here you have two personages, Yahweh and David the king. So Yahweh, their God, is the reference to Jesus Christ. David, their king, indicates that David, in resurrection during the millennial kingdom, is going to be reigning over the Jews, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ will be reigning from the throne of David over the Jews and Gentiles, and David will be the primary administrator of the, of the Jewish kingdom. And who administers the kingdom to the Gentiles? Us, the church, the companions, the metachoi of the Lord Jesus Christ. So David continuously throughout the prophets is referred to as prince and king. And in relation to the Messiah, he is a prince. But in relationship to his people, he's a king. And you have to maintain that distinction in the prophets. By the prophets, I mean Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We'll see that terminology in some of these other verses. Ezekiel 37:24, God says, And my servant David will be king over them. See, over the Jews, he will be a king. But in relation to Messiah, he's a prince. So my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, keep my statutes, observe them, and they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. And then the last clause, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So there is this return of David to the throne. Other passages, Hosea 3 and 4. Israel will someday have national salvation. David the king will reign over them for the Uh, Sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or priest. That's where we are today. Without sacrifice or sacred pillar. That's where we are today. Without ephod or household idols. That's where we are today. Afterward, 
See, that's that future emphasis. The sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Amos 9.11, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. In what day? At the end of the tribulation. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. See, it's fallen now. There's no king in Israel. I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Okay, here's a chart. What we see is that in the Old Testament there are promises made and they're not fulfilled until the future. There, in this timeline, are the dispensations. The major covenants in the Old Testament are all given. But they're not fulfilled until the Millennial Kingdom. The land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. And actually the new covenant is applied to the church age. That line going down to the church age uh, should be a hyphenated line because it's application. We're not party to the new covenant. Only Israel and Judah are party to the new covenant. Okay, back to Psalm 2-7. God says, I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, now who's speaking? Who's the me? The son. Okay, remember I said you have to make sure you know who's speaking here. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, the father. He, the father, said to me, the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Literally, the word there should be translated, today I declare you begotten. You are always my son. Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity and the eternal Son of God. He is always the Son. The Father is always the Father. This is a classic doctrine throughout church history called the eternal sonship of Christ, indicating His eternal deity. But the decree here, you are my Son, today I declare you my begotten one. Now the question becomes, when was that day? And that day was at the resurrection, when God the Father declares him the begotten one and through, with power, as we shall see from Romans 1, verse 4. And then the Father says in Psalm 2, 8, ask, or, excuse me, the Son said, that the Father said, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So at that future time, let's, I've got a chart here. Here's a timeline. Over here and at this mark is the installation of the king. That's at the second advent. This is when he is given the nations as his inheritance, 2.8, and when he rules the nations with a rod of iron in 2.9. Just prior to this timeline is when the events of Psalm 2 take place. This is when he says the Lord decreed, past tense. When was that decree? Right back here at the resurrection. Today I have begotten you. That decree is a formal legal document. It's the Hebrew word kok, C-H-O-Q, and it indicates something written, something designated, something like a, a title deed. Now I finished up with this last time and said I would come back to it, spend a little bit more time this week. And once again, I'm getting there at the very end of the, of the class period. But I want to read this to you. This is Revelation chapter 5. John is in the throne of God. He is watching the, he has watched and described the worship of God in the fourth chapter with the living creatures surrounding the throne before the crystal sea with the twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes with crowns of gold on their heads, a magnificent picture. And the twenty-four elders representing the church and Israel, the four living creatures, are saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Now, in the midst of this scene comes chapter 5, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, So John's watching all of this praise going on, and he notices that the one sitting on the throne, who is God the Father, has a scroll in his hand. And I sat 
and the one who sat on the throne had a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now that scroll is this decree talked about in Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. And the decree, part one, says, You are my son, I declare you begotten. And part two says, Ask and I will give you the nations as your possession, as your inheritance. So what's in that scroll? It's the title deed to that possession. And during the church age, the Lord Jesus Christ has been asking for that, waiting for it. That's the picture of Daniel 2, I mean Daniel chapter 7. And so here's the picture. God is on the throne. He's holding the seal. The angels are announcing who is worthy, who is worthy. The picture is that they're going around all through heaven. Who is worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? And no one, John says, in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. This is the Greek word klio. It's almost an amonim onomatopoeic word, clio. It's, he's, he's not just crying. He's just not a few tears running down his face. He is weeping, grieving uncontrollably that no one can be found who can open this scroll, who can take possession of the earth. And but one of the elders says to him and comforts him and says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, does that mean something to you now? after going through these verses on David, that this is the root of the stem of Jesse, the root of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, I just love this juxtaposition. He's the lion in the tribe of Judah, and he appears and he is a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then everyone bursts into song, singing a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, You, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2-7 when he is given the nations of the inherit- as his inheritance. And what does he have to do to, to bring that to completion? Open those seals one at a time. And each one is another judgment that is purifying the earth and preparing the Israel for the coming of her king and Messiah. So we go back to our timeline and we see that this this event is, is at the end of the tribulation, when the king is installed, when he's given the nations, when he rules the nations, and he's looking back on the declaration that is made. Now, two other passages I want to close with. Acts 13.33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, says Paul. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is saying that it's at the resurrection that this declaration is made. That isn't when he becomes a son. It is when the declaration of his sonship slash inheritance is made. This is when he is told that there is this, this decree, this title deed waiting for him. Ask, wait, set. That's the session. Then we come to, I don't have a slide for it, but Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Let me back up to verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Was He the Son of God already? Yes, He was. Was He the Son of, the, Son of God a billion years ago? Yes, He was. 
but he is declared in relation to this new sonship that's in hypostatic union that he has the right of inheritance because he's elevated above the angels and above all principalities and powers to take ownership over the earth. And the implications of that are profound for the church. That's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews 1, 1, 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? That's this declaration that took place at the ascension. Today I have begotten you, or today I declare you the begotten one. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6 and following, he develops that even more in relation to the angels and the throne, and we will get there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this magnificent picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what we see in this picture of how you worked down through history, that each generation saw a progressive development in the outworking of your plan to provide a perfect Messiah who would be undiminished deity, united with true humanity, that you couldn't do it at once, but that there was a plan, and each step of that plan had a purpose. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge that the Holy Spirit brings from this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.